Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2016, volume 54, number four. My name's David Fazakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, uh, DTB editor-in-chief. So we begin this month with an editorial discussing changes to the Cancer Drug Fund in England. Cancer Drug Fund, born out of a manifesto promise in 2010. But what have been the problems with it? So as you say, this was meant to be a temporary measure. And the idea was that no one would lose out on a drug for treat their cancer. Uh, the government would put aside millions of pounds for this. And of course, what's happened is they've spent almost a billion pounds over the last five, six years with really little to demonstrate uh, that there's been any benefit. There's been no attempt at monitoring what the outcomes have been from the use of this money. And the demands on it have just grown and grown. So were any of the assessments actually carried out by NICE? No, so the idea behind this, the, these were drugs that sort of didn't really meet NICE's thresholds for treatment, either you know, the quality levels didn't reach the correct level for NICE to approve it, or perhaps it, in some cases it was just there wasn't the evidence to be able to do any of that work at all. So drugs ended up on the, through the, funded through the, the Cancer Drug Fund. That grew and grew and grew. So what's the proposal from July onwards? So the idea behind uh, the new system is that as from July, money will be set aside as before, about uh, £350 million in the first year. The difference will be that this will be more of an interim measure. The plan will be that these drugs will be assessed over the up to the first two years of their use. And at that point, NICE will make a decision as to whether they should then be included in, if you like, in the NHS armamentarium or whether they should at that point drop out. So this should get around some of the arguments before, which is that drug companies didn't really have to do or jump through the nice hoops that they will now have to, and they could just put their drugs straight through to the Cancer Drugs Fund, no reduction in price, and they'd just be funded at full cost. Exactly, and I think that this at least makes it clear that in these two years there's a there's a there's a responsibility really to find the evidence or be able to show that this these drugs are a benefit to patients. And good that NICE is now in charge of the process and using their robust methodology to assess these medicines. But what what do we I mean do we think this will work? Yes, I mean one of the problems of course is that they do sh- say it'll be a, a a shorter and a simpler system of assessment and this was born out of um, perhaps a political necessity and I, there's a worry isn't there that the politicians will feel they need to get involved again around 2020 when they may feel that they want to tinker with the process for political gain. Okay, thank you very much. And our first main article this month reviews the management of restless leg syndrome and a new indication for uh, the analgesic Targanact, a Targanact combination of oxycodone and naloxone, So let's just start with a quick recap on restless leg syndrome. Common? Yes, I think most most GPs see quite a bit of restless leg syndrome. The studies suggest between 5 and 15% of people, adults that is, uh, suffer from this problem. It is more common in pregnancy. And uh, for many people, it's a very distressing condition. So for some people, it does need treating. And if so, what interventions are used? Yeah, so uh, most of the guidelines suggest, first of all, that you rule out any secondary causes, looking for things like iron deficiency, anemia, uremia, uh, peripheral neuropathy, or vascular disease. And then really, the first line intervention should always be lifestyle, looking at explanations, checking sleep hygiene, 
suggesting exercise is a good thing, a relaxation, it very much should be focused on, on lifestyle as first line. But presumably there's not a huge amount of evidence to support that other than it being a good thing to do. Correct. I mean, that I think is like so much of uh, lifestyle evidence, the, it is very slim. So if you get beyond that and the condition is severe enough to warrant some form of active intervention... What options have we got? So the pharmacological options open to us are the dopamine agonists and uh, both pramipexol and retigotine are licensed for the management of restless leg syndrome. We have gabapentin, which is an off-label drug that's sometimes used as well. Uh, we then move on to things like opioids and uh, hypnotics. Okay, so hold the opioid thought for a moment. Back to Targanact. It's an analgesic, it contains an opioid. Have we got much evidence around the use of opioids in restless leg syndrome? But before we get to the target act story, is there much to support opioid use? No, there's very little evidence, remarkably. And of course, the difficulty with it is, of course, is that opioids are sedative. Um, and if you've got someone who can't sleep because they've got restless legs, sedation may be one way of demonstrating some improvement in their symptoms, but it may be actually uh, not targeted at the issue that's uh, forefront of everything. So there's been a trial. They've used Targonect in patients with moderately severe restless leg syndrome. Compared it with? Uh, placebo. Okay. So the scoring system they were looking at was one devised by the International Restless Leg Symptom Study Group. And in the 12-week study they looked at, there was a reduction of about 16 points in the group taking oxycodone, naloxone, the target act, compared with placebo, where you had about a nine-point uh, reduction. And that's from a starting point or a, a baseline score of about 30, 30 points to get into the study? That's right. And secondary endpoints improved... Sleep? Yeah, so they looked at sleep dura uh, duration and there was quite considerable improvement in that actually by about 66 minutes. From these patients were on average having about five or so hours sleep a night, so from about 300 uh, minutes to about 370 odd minutes a night. And that was compared with an increase of about 23 minutes in the placebo group. But I see that might just be the effect of... Well, I, I was going to say, if you give someone oxycodone at night, that I, one presumes they are going to be pretty sedated and sleep will come. And then the other measure was a pain score. And again, that improved with... Yes, they just used a very simple 0 to 10, 11 point pain score. And there was, uh, as perhaps uh, unex not unexpected, there was an improvement with oxycodone from about 6 to 2.7 compared with placebo, where they started obviously at 6 as well, down to about 5. OK, so outcome evidence, it does something. Harm's fairly predictable, I guess, from... It's, it's an opioid, we know what opioids do. Exactly. Fatigue, uh, nausea, headache. Uh, constipation's an interesting one because the whole tenant of this drug is that it contains naloxone, which is meant to bind to the receptors in the bowel and prevent the impact of the opioid on the bowel. But patients still experience constipation. But patients still experience constipation. Okay. And I think I know the answer to this. Comparison with... Other interventions? No, as so often with these situations, absolutely no comparison with current treatment options. So we're left with a licensed product that has got some evidence, but no comparative studies with what we might regard as current treatment. Its niche is it's for severe 
patients who failed to respond to first-line pharmacotherapy, so dopamine agonists, but a difficult one for clinicians to handle? I think it is, and I think clinicians overall are becoming increasingly wary of looking at opioids for long-term conditions. And whilst, of course, restless legs do uh, improve and resolve in a number of patients, for many they don't. And I think I, for one, will be very anxious about starting a patient on a long-term opioid when there are other uh, licensed products for the management of this condition without those caveats. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month considers some of the problems associated with medicines that contain products that are derived from, from animals. So let's go back to basics. What sort of contents or excipients or products are we talking about? So what we're looking at here is, of course, there are some drugs that are actually derived from animal products. And, and the classic one is low molecular weight heparin, which is usually derived from pigs. The other a typical drug that's derived from other animals is Premarin, uh, which is estrogen-based uh, drug which is derived from uh, horse's urine. So that's the actual drug itself. And then you have many of the excipients that make up the tablet or the capsule, the formulation, which can also be from animal derivatives. The classic one is gelatin, uh, which obviously invariably makes uh, capsules, but also there are stearates and lactose, of course, which, which is derived from uh, milk. And this is a problem because some uh, faith groups or even some individual making lifestyle choices may wish to avoid them? Absolutely. So you have um, uh, many religions who have uh, concerns around eating certain products, and obviously they want to be aware of what they're putting in their mouths uh, from whatever source, be it uh, food or drugs. There are also sometimes lifestyle choices around vegetarianism. This can be related to cultural issues and certain uh, religions such as Buddhism and Hinduism, vegetarianism is, is part of part of that. But it can just be a lifestyle choice that you don't want to rely on animals and animal products and you wish to avoid them in your food or in anything that you take by mouth. So is it easy to find out what's in your medicine and therefore avoid? Well, you'd have thought so, wouldn't you? I mean, given that the regulations surrounding drugs and, you know, every drug you buy has an in leaflet which details the excipients but but as we found doing this this work you know the studies that have looked at this have found that very often there are inaccuracies in what is stated in in the leaflet or simply there's an absence of information to be able to guide you on what's in and what isn't in that that medication so there's no requirement to specify where a product contains something that has been derived from animals either in the medicine or the excipients itself None at all. And as we found in, in one study, when they reviewed where glycerin had come from in the medication, in one in five cases, it was not even listed on the packaging. So that leaves people with a, with a, with a problem. Any sources of advice? Well, the good news is there are bodies in place that will help advise both doctors and, and their patients and pharmacists around this most of the of the main religious groups in this country do have contacts that are only too willing to help uh, give advice in these situations and we do detail all that in our in our article but it would still seem there is something missing in terms of publication of information for patients and clinicians it it does seem given that this information is clearly known by by the drug companies why it couldn't be part of the patient information leaflet uh, 
uh, would be a major step forward, I think. Okay, thank you very much. And finally this month, uh, we report the sad news that Andrew Herxheimer, DTB's founding editor, died in February, aged 90. And it was through Andrew's vision that DTB came into being in 1963. He championed the idea of providing impartial and independent advice on drugs and therapeutics. He edited it for 30 years, and the stats say that it was 778 issues and over 2 million words that he was responsible for. But he went beyond that. He had other interests. He founded the International Society of Drug Bulletins, which DTB is a member. He was a founding member of Cochrane Collaboration, and he was also a founder of a database of patients' experience of illness, which is collecting stories of individuals' uh, experience of illness and how it affects them. So we've got a lot to be grateful for him. You and I were lucky enough to see him in January. We interviewed him at his home. What are your recollections from that meeting? Well, well, I mean, he's, he was a remarkable man. And even at 92, with a twinkle in his eye, he would uh, produce a couple of recent DTBs from his leather uh, briefcase and just point out some corrections that needed to be done. And I know David and I always felt a little bit like... Uh, two schoolboys uh, meeting the headmaster again. But he was a remarkable man. And I think we forget that DTB, when it came out, uh, uh, you know, in the 1960s, there was very little else out there that was talking about evidence-based medicine and therapeutics and actually suggesting that, you know, a drug might not be quite all that it was cracked up to be. And I think... It was remarkable listening to Andrew detailing how there was one particular drug that he was convinced wasn't as effective as the drug company made out, so he took it himself to prove it. And this was just the the measure of the man. And as I say, even in January, he was still interested in further work, and uh, he always had an enormous uh, interest in DTB and uh, in therapeutics in general. And it's interesting that the, the, the system he set up and the way of creating content exposing it to a wide variety of commentators for uh, criticism and improvement is still what we use use today it it has it has um yes i mean it it's just such a fair and good way of being able to make sure that we have covered all the possible biases that other people might have. You know, if you have 50 interested people all putting their point across, you get a very clear view of the landscape. And as a consequence, it enables our content to be very fair, very straightforward. And uh, I think it's interesting that even Andrew was talking about how there were times when the original authors would get cross with him way back in the 1960s because he would take their article, as they said, and completely change it. And that still happens to this day. People come to us and say, but you've changed my article completely. And the answer is, yes, we have, because actually we need to get it right and get it straight and get it unbiased. And I came away from that that session with Andrew with with kind of four things that struck me. One with his humour, still uh, full of puns and quips. His passion, not diminished. Not at all. And his interest in every subject possible, you know, he still had that, that spark of, of enthusiasm and his eye for detail. Absolutely. We, we were waiting for our next issue to be marked and sent back to us. So we have a lot to say thank you to Andrew for, and he'll be sadly missed. He will indeed. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you have any comments or feedback, please email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. And if you want to read 
these articles or any of our content, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. Thank you.